Please be seated. Uh, join me now in a prayer for the, uh, the preaching of God's word today. Lord, we are grateful as we come before you throne today. Grateful as always to be a people called for a good purpose, gathered now to sit under the proper administration of your word. Lord, thank you for your word that you've given to us that we may know you through. Know your name, to know your nature, Lord. We know indeed that you are uh, our protector, our shield, our mighty fortress. Thank you, Lord, that you protect and provide for us all that we need. Thank you, Pastor Mike, as he comes today to preach, Lord, that you have prepared him, prepared this message, Lord, for everyone who is here. As we often remind you, Lord, remind everyone, Lord, that you say, no one is here by chance. Lord, we all are here because we are called here to hear this word, to worship together and praise, to take communion together, Lord, as your body. Lord, for inviting us to be part of it. Uh, Lord, as we hear the sermon, Lord, I pray that the worries of the week would fall away. The concerns and, and issues that have held us and, and bothered us and, and that we mold upon, Lord, that they would fall away as we listen now to your word and hear it, Lord. Be changed by it as you promise it will change us. Lord, thank you for Pastor Michael's life preparation. Lord, remind him as he comes, Lord, that you are speaking through him because it is your word he preaches. Thank you, Sam. joy and a privilege to be gathered with you today, to have this opportunity to sit under the teaching of God's Word, to be encouraged by it, to be instructed by it, and ultimately our hope as we look at Christ through the Word is that we would be changed by it, amen, amen. from the inside out. So, now that you're settled and you're comfortable would you please stand with me again for the reading of God's Word? We're looking again at Psalm 46, which was also our congregational response uh, today. I invite you to read along with me. At the end of that reading, I will say that this is the Word of the Lord. I invite you to respond in true praise by saying thanks be to God. Let's begin. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Say There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Salem. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has dealt, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. We are in week 11 of our Summer in the Psalms series. We've got just a couple of weeks left. Uh, Lord willing, our brother Matthew will be preaching next week. Uh, and we'll have one more week after that before we go back uh, as we enter into sort of our fall season and the end of summer, quote unquote, uh, though not yet officially, uh, but practically. Uh, we will end our summer season in the Psalms and we'll return to the gospel according to Mark. But this week, uh, we are here in Psalm 46. And in coming to Psalm 46, we come to a psalm that we have already become quite acquainted with as a congregation. Not only have we been singing the arrangement of Psalm 46 by Shane and Shane, for a few years now, but Joel actually preached through this psalm for us last year. And in the midst of his sorrow over the loss of his brother, Joel preached and encouraged us to see and to remember that Christ Jesus is our mighty fortress and present help in time of trouble. Today, I will preach through this psalm as well, not because Joel did a bad job, uh, on the contrary, uh, he preached a great sermon, and uh, there was nothing lacking in that sermon, but so that we as a congregation would be able to learn by repetition the great truths that are represented for us here, uh, we are going to rehearse it yet again. Uh, certainly, there will be some points that will be familiar, because it's the same song, uh, but perhaps with a different flavor, uh, so to speak. But I do want to encourage you to go back and listen again uh, to the sermon that Joel preached for us last year. Uh, as we have been doing over the last many weeks, I'll remind you that Psalms is divided into five different books. As you read the Psalms, you'll notice, especially if you're reading more than one Psalm at a time, uh, you may find as you read, suddenly just in the middle, randomly it seems, there's a heading that'll say book one, or book two, or book three. But as you read, it's like, okay, well, nothing really changed. We just went from one psalm to the next. But there are five of those books uh, in the psalms so that we could almost say that we could think of psalms more of a, uh, as more of a box set of five books as opposed to one book. And today we are in book two as we look at Psalm 46 because book two contains Psalms 42 through 72. And we have said that a good title for that book, book two, is the king's commitment to God's kingdom. The king's commitment to God's kingdom. Psalm 46 is one of the Psalms in the Psalter that have been referred to as the Songs of Zion. And so though not all together in book two, but spread out throughout the Psalter, there are a handful of these Psalms that seem to really uh, speak to and sing to, because these are all songs, uh, about 
Zion, about Jerusalem in a particular sense, perhaps in the way that they were originally written. But in another sense, they are sung eschatologically, meaning that they are sung with a view towards the future, to the eschaton, to the end of times, to a time when they are singing of things that we may not see fully in the present moment, we, but we are singing with hope, uh, not wishing upon a star that they may come to pass, but with a confident hope because these things are steeped in and based in God's promises for the future. And these songs of Zion are referenced in Psalm 137 uh, when it says that the captors of Israel said to them, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. These were songs, these songs of Zion were songs that swelled with national pride and confidence and commitment, not merely of the people towards God, but rather of God's commitment to his people. And so in Psalm 137, they are reminiscing about a time when God allowed his people to be taken captive and their captors uh, mistook the songs of Zion, so to speak, as anthems of present reality rather than pointing to a greater eschatological reality in the future. And so their captors were taunting them, saying, yeah, why don't you, why don't you sing one of those songs of Zion now? Where, in other words, where's your God now? Where's your national pride now? Where, where is all your confidence now? We just kicked your butt, so to speak. So they're taunting them, saying, yeah, tell us again how your God was going to protect you from us. Sing, sing. Sing how you were going to see us defeated. Now, ultimately, we know the rest of the story, right? God allowed his people to go into captivity because they had rebelled against him. But ultimately, God, by his spirit, would bring repentance again. And when his people humbled themselves and prayed, just like God promised through Solomon at the founding of the temple, when they sought his face, what did God do? He turned, he heard them from heaven. He forgave them, he healed their land, and he brought them back from their captors. And Psalm 46 today does sing of God's protection of his people and the city of Zion. But if we pay attention, we'll see that it speaks of a better Zion to come, rather than of the one that was around during the writing of the psalm. Now, because of this, because Psalm 46 is filled, and how many times did we sing, say, just as we read it, did you notice the words fortress, refuge, strength? God is with us, right? This is a psalm filled with confidence in our God, who is our refuge and strength. And so because of this, Psalm 46 from the time it was written until present day, has been a song of great comfort to the church, both in the Old Testament 
and now in times of great difficulty, persecution, or tribulation in what we would call the New Testament church. It was during the Reformation that Psalm 46 would inspire Martin Luther to pen his hymn inspired by this psalm, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Literally, during the time of his inquisition at the Diet of Worms is when Luther, filled with fear, quite honestly, because he was standing before men who were calling him to recant the things that he had written about the truth of God and his word. And these men had the power, literally, to sentence him to death or to throw him in prison for the rest of his life. And he wrestled with this and he struggled with this and he had to ask himself, am I smarter than all the men that came before me? Am I alone the one who has understood these things? And now should I do what they're asking me to do? Should I recant? And in the midst of that trial, he would write, a mighty fortress is our God. This world with devils filled should seek to undo us, yet God's truth will triumph through us. And ultimately he would stand that next day and say what? Here I stand. I can do no other, right? It is not wise to go against conscience. And when he and others after that day were in more times of danger and great peril, he was known to gather up those who were with him and saying to his friend and confident, Philip Melanchthon, he would say, come Philip, let us sing the 46th and let them do their worst. In other words, let's, Let's fill ourselves with confidence in the Lord, who is our mighty fortress, who is our refuge and our strength, and let, it, let them come. Let them do what they will do. Scholars actually believe that it was exactly during or right after a time of great peril that this song was penned, likely at the time of King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah. If you'll notice the title of this psalm, it says to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And then it says, according to Alamoth, a psalm. Now we spoke some weeks ago about what it means just to have that title, a song of the sons of Korah. Of course, Korah was the their original uh, forebear who actually didn't care for his job. He had a lot of job dissatisfaction and thought that as a Levite, his job as a doorkeeper was just not that great. And so he went and he stood before Moses and the people of Israel complaining about his job. And God said to Moses, well, let's do this then. And he had Korah go and stand over on one side and everybody that wanted to join him in his rebellion to go and stand. Basically, you know, the old days, Mark Twain wrote about it. If you want to fight, you draw a line in the sand and you say, you step across that line. And that really showed you want to step across the line, you're really ready to go. And then you would fight, right? Or you'd put a, a piece of wood on the shoulder and you say, you really want to fight, you knock this off my shoulder. 
And boy, if someone did that, then all bets were off and watch out. God drew a line in the sand and Korah went and stood on the other side. And the Lord caused the earth to open up and swallow Korah whole. He was no more. And yet, God spared Korah's family. And so whenever we see a song of the sons of Korah, we can be reminded of God's grace because his sons were not destroyed with him in his rebellion, which was expected. Rather, they received mercy and grace at the hands of the Lord. And that line would continue such that if it is true that this psalm was penned at the time of King Hezekiah, many generations had passed from the time of Korah's rebellion. And so we see the Lord's grace just even in the title of this song. Now it says, according to Alamoth, which nobody really knows what it means. <laughs> but there is some speculation that it means either uh, to be pointing to a particular instrument that's meant to be used in the singing of this song, or perhaps uh, a particular way that it was meant to be sung. Uh, Spurgeon was of the opinion that it meant soprano voices or even just female-only voices, uh, but we really don't know for sure. Uh, but that gives us a little bit of direction, and, and we should know even with this being a song of the sons of Korah, that it is filled with the grace of the Lord. Lastly, before we jump into the psalm, it's interesting to note that this song is commanded to be sung during congregational worship. Though it talks about God, it does not really talk to God. A lot of times we think of the psalms as psalms that are being lifted up as prayerful petition to the Lord. But this is a song that really is more about God. It seems to be rather addressing the hearer or even the singer themselves. And so this song, just in its structure, can actually inform our own hymnody. Uh, that it's okay at times to write songs that address the people of God themselves encouraging them to look upon the Lord, to behold his works, and then to have their faith and confidence enlivened and stirred up to uh, believe in God all the more. And I'll say that it is the minority report for the Psalms. So if we had to take a survey of all the Psalms, uh, those Psalms that just speak about God instead of to him are certainly the minority uh, but that this should also inform our own hymnody, not allowing these types of songs to overshadow those songs that do address God personally and reverently. But there's certainly a place for these types of songs. And, and because they speak about God, what do they become? They be, really become anthem-like, right? That, that because we are singing these great truths about God, there is a sense in which the, the thrust of Psalm 46 is really like an anthem, right? It's a song that is meant to be sung by a congregation of people in a way that's meant to fill us 
or fill the singers with great confidence, right? Uh, if you've ever uh, participated in any kind of athletics and you've had the opportunity to wear the colors of your country or even just to stand there as the flag is raised and the anthem is played, there is a undeniable sense of unity and confidence that is created in that moment. As you hear that, you'll watch sporting events. Maybe you've been there yourself or you watch the Olympics and, and, and the, it doesn't matter which country it is, watch the, the, the competitors. And as their flag is lifted up and their anthem is sung or played, you'll watch just tears streaming down their face. Right? Why? Because this anthem is singing these things. And, and, and watch even those countries where the competitors are from countries where things are not as they are sung. You understand what I'm saying? That their anthem is filled with those things that they wish that their country was like. We may even find ourselves in a situation like that presently from time to time. And yet that confidence is reinstilled. Why? Because we're singing about things that ought to be. And it fills us with a sense of longing if those things are not the way that they are, that they would again become or at last become those things that we wish that they were. And Psalm 46 is like this. It is an anthem. And, and there is a, a, a corporate um, thrust in this psalm as well. Why? Because it's not saying my and I and me. What is it saying? It's saying us and our and we in this psalm. And so there is a sense in which it is very appropriate for this to be a song that is sung by a congregation of God's people or even in microcosm families, households, right? Uh, dads, fathers, there may be a time when your family is experiencing a particular kind of battle in your lives. And it's not something that you've been able as a dad or a father, a husband, to just keep alone, but it has spilled over and it's affected your wife, it's affected your children, or maybe even grandfathers, your grandchildren. And there might be a time where you gather your family together. And like Luther, you say, come, let us sing the 46th and let them do their worst. Right? And, and, and what does it do? It says, we are as a family, a microcosm of the church, a household. We're going to put our confidence in the Lord. Even though everything around us seems like shifting sand, we're going to build our life and our family on the rock. Of Jesus Christ. That's what this psalm is all about. It's a psalm that's divided into three parts. You can see those three parts very easily if you look in your Bible. And those three stanzas are uh, shown to be divided by ending each of them in a Selah. Uh, if you remember, Selah in the text of the Psalms uh, is like a pause, it's a, it's a break. 
in the music. Some have said that it is a time for crescendo, that perhaps that's at the moment where the, the cymbals would crash, and it's kind of hard to sing over crashing cymbals, and so there would be a, a break in the song, and there would be a great crescendo and a crashing of the cymbals. Regardless, the best way for us to receive a Selah in the Psalms, especially as we read them and we study them, is to pause, to stop, and to calmly reflect on what we have just heard or read or listened to or even sung ourselves. You'll also notice in the structure of the Psalm that there's a refrain repeated in both verses 7 and at the end of the song in verse 11. What is that refrain? What does it say? It says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And truly, this is the heart of this psalm. Some scholars believe that perhaps the original writing of this psalm, that this was even uttered at the beginning. Uh, and perhaps we've lost that at some point. We don't know. But the reality is we can see uh, if there's one thing to take away from this psalm, it's verse 7 and verse 11. That the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So let's walk through it verse by verse, or at least section by section. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. You'll notice that the English word refuge is used three times in this psalm. Here in verse 1, and then again in those repeating refrains that we just referenced in verses 7 and 11. But what's interesting is that it's two different Hebrew words that are used. And the word used in verse 1 is different than the word used in verse 7 and 11. So in the English, we just come away with refuge, refuge, refuge. But in the original writing, there were two different words that were used. And the word here in verse 1 means something closer to shelter or covering. Whereas what we translate again as refuge in 7 and 11 is something closer to the idea of a high place or a tower or a fortress set on a hill. Think of those great Roman or Saxony fortresses in Europe that were built on these hills and then a moat dug out around them with a drawbridge. Like that is a refuge as it is related to verse 7 and 11. But here in verse 1, we have the idea more of almost like a tent or a covering, a shelter. Um, and here in verse 1, God is not merely a covering, but he is also called what? A strength and a very present help in trouble. This is a reality that we can come to know very quickly in nature. That there are different kinds of shelters in the storm. Or we could think of this in terms of that old story, the three little pigs, right? There was a difference between the shelter of straw and the shelter of sticks and the shelter of bricks. I recently saw that uh, someone saying we missed, there was actually a fourth little pig and uh, he built his house out of wolf skulls. May not have been as strong as the bricks, but it sent a really powerful message, right? 
Um, there are different kinds of shelters from the storm, and some are flimsy and might keep you dry during a little downpour, but would never suffice in a turbulent storm, a mega storm like what we saw in the, with the disciples with Jesus in the gospel according to Mark. The reality is that we will throughout our lives, even as a nature, also spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically, we will have need to take shelter because this life is filled with storms. And, and you know, if you've ever been in a storm, what it's like, right? The, you might be out uh, in uh, doing, perhaps taking part in some kind of group activity, and, you know, it just starts to kind of, at our home, we call it, it spits, right? It's just spitting, but it just kind of, you know, just little little pelts of rain coming down here and there. And for a while, what? It's like, no, my skin and my head, my hair, maybe a hat, is enough shelter for me. But then it starts coming down a little bit harder. What do you do? You start looking for something else. Like, okay, this is getting a little annoying. Now I'm starting to get wet. This, you know, I need something a little more than just a hat. And so what do we go for an umbrella, right? But then the wind starts to blow and inevitably what happens to the umbrella gets inverted, right? It starts going out the wrong way. Now it's useless. And so what do you do? You run perhaps for a canopy. Maybe if you're in a group activity, someone's set up, you know, a canopy. Think of the, those soccer fields out there and the kids and it starts to rain and there's like a canopy, which is Truly only a Texas thing, let me tell you. Uh, I grew up in the Northwest. We played soccer, rain or shine, right? The only thing that got us out of the field was lightning, all right? Uh, just saying, uh, because, and it's not because we were tough, it's because if you didn't do anything when it rained in the Northwest, you would never do anything uh, because it just rains all the time, okay? Uh, here, it's like, oh, hey, if we just hang out, you know, 20, 30 minutes, this will blow over, the sun will come out, and uh, we can get back to business here. Uh, that would have never happened when I was growing up. But as the rain comes down, what, you start seeking different kinds of shelter. But if the wind really starts to blow, if the thunder uh, clouds start to roll in, and, and you start to see, hey, we are in for more than just a little downpour here, this is really becoming a storm, what do you do? You start seeking stronger shelter. And notice here that the psalmist is careful to say that God is not just like some kind of flimsy umbrella or some kind of canopy that's going to get whipped up into the, the wind and carried away like mine did over my fence some years ago into my neighbor's house. No, it says that God is our shelter and our strength. This again is that place of comfort. Remember that our word comfort comes from the Latin cum forte, which means with strength. When we pray for one another that God would comfort us, what we're actually praying, whether we realize it or not, is that this person would be filled with strength, not their own strength, but the strength of Psalm 46 verse 1, the strength of God who is their shelter and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
God's not merely a covering. He is a strong shelter. And we will throughout our lives, whether physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, we will need a place of shelter. And the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is that when the storms of life come, we have a strong shelter to run to. And it's our God. Many of us at different times, we find our, let me put it this way, we find ourselves sitting here today in this place, under this roof, in these seats, because once upon a time, we met a storm in our life that we couldn't weather by ourselves. And we said to ourselves, where should I run? And something or someone said, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And that's how we found ourselves in the church. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. But here's the thing about shelters. You have to actually go inside. It's not enough to look at it and go, I've got a great shelter over there. Look at my shelter. Isn't it strong? See how the wind is blowing and it's just not going anywhere and it's great. But you're standing outside being whipped by wind and rain and sleep and whatever else. It's not doing you any good unless you actually go and hunker down, take shelter in it. In other words, don't be like Harry R. Truman. Not Harry S. Truman, the president. Don't be like Harry R. Truman. Remember I said I grew up in the Northwest. Harry R. Truman is famous in the Northwest because Harry R. Truman was the businessman and bootlegger who lived on the slopes of Mount St. Helens. And when everyone said, this thing is about to blow, you need to take shelter elsewhere. Harry S. Truman said, buzz off. And he stayed on the slopes of Mount St. Helens and died in 1980. There are storms in this life that will take you out if you don't seek the shelter that God has provided for you. And no shelter in some circumstances means certain death. But something happens when we have shelter, right? When, when you're out in the middle of the storm, it's anybody's game. We gonna make it? I don't know. If you've ever been out on the water in the midst of a storm, that is a scary situation. But once you get off the water, once you get back on land, once you take shelter, what happens? Something happens, right? Something changes. Your demeanor in the shelter is not the same as it was in the boat. Why? Because shelter does something to us. And we see that in verse 2. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It is stated. It is fact. It is truth. This is reality. Whether you have recognized it yet or not, this is the truth. 
You need shelter. You need refuge. Run to God. God is our refuge and strength and help in trouble. Verse 2 tells us what happens when we accept and acknowledge that truth and run to him. Verse 2 says, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Stop and calm and think about that. Have you ever seen a landslide? You ever watched any of those videos of the glaciers where just a whole side of a glacier will come flying down into the water and then the ocean swells and, and, and takes and carries boats far, far away? It's a, it's a scary proposition to be in that kind of a place. I've, I've been on roads when landslides have come down and just completely washed out the road and blocked the way literally seconds from having been where the landslide is and that it's scary glad to be on the other side of it glad for God's grace that I can see wow if it wasn't for God I would have been right there it's scary and yet here the psalmist says that if God is our refuge and strength and very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even if the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And think about this again, just for a moment. This is a song of the sons of Korah. Hello? Though the earth gives way, their great, 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 whatever grandfather was swallowed up by the earth. And yet here they're saying, but if God is our refuge and strength and our very present help, even if the earth gives way, hello, we're not going to fear. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. There's something about mountains you expect them to always kind of be there. So the idea of a mountain being moved into the heart of the sea is this idea of all of life's certainties being stripped away. Right? It's totally in this place of now chaos. This, this, this structure that I've I've always been certain would always be there. That, that has been a, an anchoring point, a, a navigational point, right? Which side of the city are you on? Oh, well, if you have hills, if you have mountains, you're able to say, well, it's on this side of Mount such and such or whatnot. And suddenly that mountain is removed. And what, what does that mean? It means I don't, I don't know where I am. I'm not oriented anymore. There's, there's a disorientation of my life because all certainties have been stripped away. And yet the psalmist says, of us collectively together, remember, therefore we will not fear. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength. In other words, we can see here a very clear indicative imperative formula. The indicative is God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
The imperative comes in verse 2 with the therefore. Therefore, because that is true, because that is reality, therefore, we will not fear. And they say, essentially, come what may. Right? That's Luther again. Let us sing the 46th and let them do their worst. Come what may. The earth gives way. The mountains moved into the heart of the sea. Waters roar and foam. Mountains tremble. Yet we will not be afraid. Why? For God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Now this is not saying, hear me, this is not saying that God's people never fear. Even the structure of the indicative and imperative speaks to the fact that God's people get afraid sometimes. But what the psalm is doing is it's turning our attention, it's preaching the gospel to us, if you will, that in the midst of our fear, we need something to tell us that it's okay and we don't have to be afraid anymore. Right? Just like parents you do with your kids. Right? They may be afraid because the thunder or the lightning. But what do you tell them? I mean, I hope I hope you tell them. What do you right? If you're inside the house and there's thunder and lightning and rain, do your kids need to be afraid? No. Why? Because you have refuge. You have a, hopefully a strong refuge. Right? Now, hurricane rips through town. You might change your mind about that. And do what? Not be like Harry R. Truman. Run for what? Refuge. Shelter. A stronger place of refuge and shelter. And then when you get there, what happens? The fears you have in the midst of the storm abate. Why? Because now you have found a place of refuge and strength. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. This psalm preaches the gospel to us. We should read it in the midst of times of being afraid so that we can be reminded that if God is our refuge and strength, we don't have to be afraid anymore. And again, what? We will not be afraid. It speaks again to the congregation. It speaks of God's Israel. This is the church. Israel is the church in the Old Testament. The church is Israel in the New Testament. They are one and the same, grafted together with the same family history. This is our song. It's the song of the people of God. And there's a Selah. Sometimes in the midst of the storm and the chaos and the confusion, and you're seeking shelter and you're trying to find refuge and you finally get there, what do you need to do? made it. We're here. Have you ever been in those moments? Maybe with your family, maybe on your own, 
life starts throwing you curveballs that you have not been equipped or trained to hit, you're wondering how are we ever going to get through this? And you go to the Lord. You present your troubles, your problems, your circumstances to Him. You cry out to God for help. And then you wait. And in the waiting, what do you do? You remind yourself of some very important truths. One that's been important for me in my life growing up in my life as a man, as a husband, as a father. Just the simple truth that God is still on the throne. Like that's something I have to remind myself of sometimes. When, when it seems like all of everything around me is in direct rebellion to God, I have to remind myself, take a breath, Okay, what do I know is true? I know that God is still on the throne. I know that he's still the king of the universe. I know that he cannot and will not be thwarted. I know he's in control. I know he's good. And I know he can be trusted. Right? Sometimes you've got to work yourself through those truths. You've got to remind yourself of those truths so that you can get to that therefore in the midst of the chaos. Okay, if that's true, then even though I am, I am afraid right now, I know I don't have to be. So Lord, help me not be afraid. Help me to trust that you're in control. Help me to remember that you are our refuge and strength and very present help in trouble. Say that. This leads us to the next section, verses four through seven. And the key to this stanza is in verses five and seven. So see if you can pick it up. So here in this place where the people of God are declaring that because God is a refuge and strength and present help in trouble, that they don't have to be afraid. Come what may, we don't have to be afraid. And the song sort of shifts. It's almost as if the melody changes a little bit. We move into a different part of the song. And the focus changes, right? It was on the problems. The earth is melting and giving way. The mountains are being thrown into the sea. We're in the midst of chaos and uncertainty. And the song shifts. Therefore, we will not fear. And, and the confidence leads the song into a different stanza. And it shifts and it changes. And the focus changes. And what does it say? It says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Suddenly now we're not focused on the problems. Now our heart is being lifted up. It's being made glad because we're focused on the goodness of the Lord that's found in this river. Why a river? Well, we only have to look at the history of the world, at our own city, to see that rivers mean life. There's a reason that many of the major cities in the world were built on rivers. Why? 
River is a life-giving force. It's water for drinking and for agriculture. It's fish, it's wildlife, it's transportation, it's energy. A river means life. Think about our own city, San Antonio, what it would be like without the river. Not only in history, but even in present day, the river is what brings so much of our city's wealth to us as the seventh largest city in the United States. The smallest big city you'll ever see, right? But think about others, Chicago, Sacramento, each bearing the name of the river as their city. New York has the Hudson, DC, the Potomac. London has the Thames. Rome has the Tiber. Egypt has the Nile. Let me ask you a question. What river is it that runs through the city of Jerusalem? There is no river that runs through the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on a hill, on a mount, and there is no river there. Is this some kind of extra biblical contradiction? What's going on? Is the psalmist lying? What river makes glad the city of God if there's no river inside? Remember I said that the key here is verses 5 and 7, so let's keep reading. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. So what's the key? The key is in verse 5 and 7, God is in the midst of the Lord of hosts is with us. There is this river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, but there's no river in Jerusalem. So what river is this? Well, apparently the psalmist is pointing to some kind of life-giving force in Zion. So what river is it? God is in her. The Lord of hosts is with us. God himself is the life-giving force of Jerusalem. God himself, or more appropriately or accurately, it's Jesus himself. He is the fount from whom all blessings flow. The rock which gave water in the desert and the one from whom the river of life will flow again from the throne of God the one from whose side water flowed to heal the nations. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Remember, as I said, that this psalm speaks of a greater Zion than the one that was present at its writing. Revelation 22, interestingly, the last chapter in the book. And what does it say? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This river that makes glad the city of God is speaking to that eschatological hope. When God himself, Christ the Lamb, will be again the one from whom the river flows. Remember the rock in the midst of the desert. And what do the New Testament writers tell us? That that rock is Jesus. There's nothing sadder than a dry riverbed because there's no life in it. Usually stinks. And if it doesn't stink, that means it's been dry for a really long river that makes glad the city of God is a river of living water because the life that courses through it is the life of Jesus himself and Jesus is already presently for us and was for Israel a shelter and a strength, a very present help in trouble, and a life-giving force as if a river flowing through the streets of God's city. But yet again, that water will flow in reality and fullness, and what we think of now in spiritual terms will be reunited with the physical world around us. What makes Zion a place of shelter and rescue is not the height of its hill or the strength and fortitude of its walls. What makes Zion a happy, glad shelter is the presence of Almighty God, the Lord of hosts, who is with us. And so what does this psalmist say? If God is in our midst, what? Verse five, we shall not be moved. God's presence is with us in and through Christ and by the Holy Spirit. And this is the most important thing in life. What did Moses say to the Lord? God told him it was time to move. And Moses said, uh-uh, unless your presence goes with us, we aren't moving. presence of God is the most important thing in life. And again, we hearken to Psalm 23. Remember? Psalm 23, the good the Psalm of the Good Shepherd. And what does it say? I will not fear for you are with me. And here we are reminded that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Notice this as well, verse 6. The nations rage 
The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. In other words, the one who spoke creation into existence can speak and the earth will melt. In other words, your mama wasn't the first one to say, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. She got that from God. And the Bible is biblical. Maybe out of context. But essentially, that's what God's saying. Hey, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. I spoke this world into existence and I can speak and it will melt like wax in my presence. This leads us to the last stanza. I love this. Oh, come, behold the works of God. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. And again, the refrain in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Essentially, the psalmist here is saying, return and spend time in the museum of God's great works. Rehearse his record and his deliverances of old. And then, what? Be still and know that I am God. This seems like a beautiful little sentiment, doesn't it? And this is perhaps the part of Psalm 46 that you have heard before, if you haven't heard the whole thing before. It's that verse that people like to embroider on little pictures or paint. Be still and know that I am God. Usually, you know, it would be like a, a nature scene, maybe a meadow, maybe even a river. Maybe the river makes glad the city of God and little fawns maybe jumping and birds and butterflies, trees in the distance. A painted canvas filled with still places, like from Psalm 23. How surprising it was in my own study to find that that is not what is going on here. But to get to this, we need to do what the psalmist told us to do. Let's visit the museum. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 19, if you would. I encourage you to go back and read the whole account that's found here in 2 Kings 19, perhaps this week. We're going to look at just a few sections, a couple of sections together. Let me fill you in. Remember I said that scholars believe that it was perhaps during the time of King Hezekiah and Isaiah that this psalm was written. And 2 Kings 19 is this account of what happened with King Hezekiah. What's happened is the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, has come with almost 200,000 soldiers to the gates of Jerusalem. Not only that, they didn't just march directly to Jerusalem, but they wiped out everything in their path, and it ultimately led to the gates of Jerusalem. 
And outside the city gates were the people who were taking shelter in Zion, in Jerusalem. They found some Hebrew speakers. And they got them to come and start shouting things in Hebrew for all the people to hear. Basically saying, look at our war path. See all of the cities that we have laid waste. See their gods crumbled and broken down in their temples. Look at how vast our army is. Do you really think that your God will save you from us? It got so bad that they had to go and ask them to stop speaking in Hebrew and start communicating in Assyrian because the people were in a panic. I mean, what would you think? Surrounded by almost 200,000 warriors looking how they've just been victorious over everyone that stood in their way. You can see the smoke raising in the distance of the cities that they've burned. And now they're here. But the prophet Isaiah was there. And he went to reassure Hezekiah. He gave him some instruction and basically said, King Hezekiah, you need to take it to the Lord. Now, in normal circumstances as a king, what would you be doing? You would be getting your, the war room going. Get your chief strategists and your best warriors and, and those who know the city walls like the back of their hand and saying, okay, where are our weak points? Where are our strongest points? What do we got to do? How much food do we have? How, how long can we stay in here and, and, and keep them out? Where are our archers and where are our warriors? Call everybody together. Instead, Isaiah tells the king to go to the Lord. And so picking it up in verse 14, Hezekiah's received a letter, kind of a, a, a last ultimatum from Sennacherib. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. He literally takes the letter into the temple, into the presence of God, and he just lays it out on the floor begins to pray, likely prostrate himself. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now... O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. At that point, the prophet Isaiah 
would prophesy the word of the Lord. And we'll pick it up again in verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, for he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own name's sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Mishrach, his god, Adrimelech and Shazer, Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And as Sheridan, his son, reigned in his place. There's two ways that the command to be still were obeyed in that text. The Hebrew words that are used when it says be still actually mean in the most literal way to lay down. In a sense of complete surrender. When a police officer comes upon a perpetrator, what do they make him do? I'll try not to blow your ears out. Get down, get down, get down! Get down on the floor right now, get down, get down, get down! of complete surrender. What do they do? They kick any weapons away from them. They remove their, they disarm him completely. It is a place of total and complete surrender. And the force of the words in Psalm 46 when it says, be still and know that I am God. Interesting, it's there in that verse that we hear God's voice for the first and only time. But the force of the words are shut up and get down.
It's not a pretty little meadow with fawns and butterflies. It's shut up. Lay down your arms and get down. I said it was obeyed in two ways. In what we read, first it was obeyed by King Hezekiah. Because in the midst of the time where everything inside of him and everyone around him would have been saying, it's time to pick up your arms and fight. What did Hezekiah do? He took the letter, he went into the temple, he laid it before the Lord, he prostrated himself. What did he do? He shut up and he got down. There's so many times in our own lives when things are in the midst of chaos and everything inside of us and everyone outside of us is telling us how we need to do all these things to save ourselves. And what we really need more than anything is to shut up and get down take refuge in the Lord of hosts who's with us and the God of Jacob who is our fortress. But it was also obeyed by Sennacherib because all of his taunting came to nothing. And in the presence of his own God, he was struck down and made to shut up. Because as Hezekiah prayed, the God of Israel is the God. He will not be trifled with. Be still and know that I am God. Stop striving. If you're on the side of those who can sing this song and say, God is our refuge and strength, then stop striving to create shelter for yourself. Shut up, get down, hunger down, and trust the shelter of the Most High God. Lean into Him, come into the shelter, take refuge in Him, and stop striving to save yourself. If you're on the other side, then bow your knee to the God of heaven and earth and find that he who has been your enemy He who has been the one that you felt 
was always against you can be for you a shelter as well. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. There's a sense in which that statement could almost sum up all of Scripture. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. From the covering and shelter of Adam and Eve's nakedness by sacrifice, to the ark which sheltered God's people and Noah's family from the flood and preserved the line, to the little basket that protected Moses, to the rock that cleft for him as he was placed in it to see God's glory, to the cloud by day and the fire by night, to the fourth man in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Scripture has been proclaiming that God is our refuge and strength and present help in time of trouble. And it's Jesus from beginning to end. All leading to the cross of Jesus Christ, which is our ark, our shelter, the propitiation, a complete and total wrath-absorbing shelter for us and in our place. And so I pray, Oh God, like you open the eyes of Gehazi, Elisha's servant, to see the chariots of fire of God's army, open our eyes to see that the Lord of hosts is with us and that the God of Jacob is our fortress. Whatever you're going through today, beloved, I want to encourage you, take it like Hezekiah, take it to the Lord. Be encouraged by what you've heard in scripture today that this truth is reality. The Lord our God is our fortress. He is with us. He is a shelter and our strength, a present help in times of trouble. Breathe in the Word of God today and breathe out prayer, praise, petition, worshipful adoration, supplication, intercession. Thanksgiving. Someone asked Spurgeon, what's more important, Bible reading or prayer? Spurgeon declined to answer directly and instead asked them a question. He said, let me ask you, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? We breathe in the Word of God. We breathe out prayer and praise Let's do that now. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for your word given to us today through Psalm 46, this reminder that you are our shelter and our strength and very present help in trouble. That you are with us as the Lord of hosts, as the Lord of angel armies. Though 200,000 come in our gates, though the earth itself give way and the mountains crash into the sea, would you, O God, by your spirit today, enliven and strengthen our faith to believe that if you are with us, 
that if you are for us, that we have absolutely nothing to fear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion.